Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh72. We have three hosts this week. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo behind AskLeo.com, which besides being full of Leo is where I answer questions that people have been asking about technology and hopefully give people a little bit more confidence to use it more effectively. I'm Kevin Savitz, the Kevin behind FreePrintable.net, where you'll find so much Kevin and printable documents and templates. <laughs> I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at MacMost.com, where I post all sorts of tutorials all week long uh, about how to get the most from your Mac. And I also make uh, mobile apps and do all sorts of other things. So I can get things uh, kicked off here of what we were doing this week. Um, well, actually, I've, so I've missed, uh, I missed the last episode. It sounds like you guys had a great time. Uh, I was sick. And then last week, we all missed. Um, yes, we did. And uh, I was actually at a, uh, at a user group. I don't know if... A lot of people think about this, but you know there are user groups for all sorts of things, including Mac users, uh, all over the country, meeting all the time. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. You know, whatever you're into, Mac, Windows, uh, you know, 3D printers, whatever. There's there are user groups everywhere. So I go and speak to some Mac groups every once in a while, and every once in a while, uh, one of them is close enough for me to drive to. So I drove down to Colorado Springs and talked to the group there, and that's always a uh, a great time to be able to to talk in person to a group like that. In the last week, um, I guess uh, in book news, <laughs> I'm always the one talking about books, but uh, one of my favorite authors and certainly one of the favorite authors of many uh, geeks is uh, Neil Stevenson. And it takes him like two or three years to write a book. So it's big news when he has a new one out and he has a new one out and I'm almost finished it. Um, it's say it takes him two or three years to write it. It takes everybody yeah. two or three years to then read it because they're usually so large. Oh yeah, this, this book is huge. I forget how many pages, but it's <laughs> you know typical of his stuff. Um, and but you know you don't. It, it's it's like on the one hand the plot is moving me forward, right? I want to get to the end of this book because I want to find out how it ends. Right. On the other hand, I'm going to be sad when I'm done because then it's going to be another two or three years before I get have some other Neil Stevenson to read. Uh, but yeah, this is this is called Fall or Dodge in Hell, um, and you know, of course, it being a new book, I do not want to say anything about it. It's going to be a spoiler, so sticking to things he said in promotional interviews and what's on the flap of the book. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, he doesn't typically write sequels or uh, things like that. You know, books that are connected. I mean, he wrote this Broke Cycle three book series that was a kind of a prequel to Cryptonomicon, one of his most popular books. But other than that, most of his books have been standalone and this is definitely a standalone, but it's a sequel in a way to Reemdy, which was a tech thriller he wrote about a decade ago. Interesting. Or maybe eight years ago. And that's revealed in the title because Dodge is the name of the character. Um, so fall or dodge in hell it dot reverse to dodge. And of course, right away in the book, you're, you're right there with dodge again, several years after the end of, uh, uh, Reemdy. The interesting thing is that's revealed in interviews and you find out right away in the first chapter is that it's also a continuation of Cryptonomicon, which is amazing because, um, first of all, I don't think anybody had any idea that Reemdy and Cryptonomicon were in the same universe together. Um, but apparently they are, and uh, there are characters from both books uh, in this book there and mentions of events. Uh, you don't really have to have read either of those books. I was just going to say, God dang it, Gary, now you're making me read again because yeah. <laughs> I, I read Reemdy, but it's yeah. been long enough that I don't remember it. Mm. And I've never read Cryptonomicon. Mm. And it sounds like I, I just should because I should. But now it like I should because I have to if I want to read this new one. Cryptonomicon is probably my uh, favorite book out of everything he's ever written. Um, so I'd, maybe the most geeky. I don't know. It's, that's hard to say because, you know, some of them are pretty geeky too. But, uh, you know, it's Cryptonomicon is great. And then the Broke Cycle epic uh, 
is a prequel to that many centuries earlier prequel to Cryptonomicon. Um, and this follows it. You don't, you, you definitely can read <clears throat> this new book fall or dodge and hell um, without having read any of those books previously. Right. But it feel it's what I'm, what I'm sensing from what you're saying is that I'd miss a few things. if you, I did. You'd enjoy it. Well, I certainly am enjoying, um, you know, the, you know, recognizing things in the book. Uh, particularly at the beginning and saying, Oh, it's this character or, Oh, he mentioned the thing that happened, you know, where, you know, and it's like, okay, it's not, if I miss that, no big deal, but it was enjoyable to connect to that. Um, so yeah. Uh, plus of course that Krypton great book. You wouldn't regret reading that for a second. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's really cool. And I'm almost, uh, you know, I'm getting close to the end of that. Um, and, uh, so far like it a lot. So, you know, does not disappoint. Um, it's typical Neil Stevenson stuff, uh, really deep. And I may, I may actually read this book a second time, uh, which is something I had. I've never read any book really a second time right afterwards. But I feel this book has so much stuff in it that if I'm still like when I get to the end, if I feel up to it, I may just start it again just to try to get some of the details still in, knowing that the the plot, you know, how the plot goes. I do that for movies occasionally. If I really like a movie, I want to go back and watch it again right away. Now that I know how the plot falls out, I can pay attention to cinematography and character development, and all sorts of things. But then that's only a two-hour investment. <laughs> it's a bit different when you're talking about a massive book like this. Speaking of movies, have either of you done um, uh, Dark Phoenix? No, no, I've not. It, so that's an X-Men movie, right? Yes. Yeah, so X-Men is probably one of the few franchises that I just have not followed. Okay. So it's funny cuz it's one that that a friend and I definitely have followed and the uh, the movie did really really poorly at the box office. And mm. I'm not I was just curious if either of you had an opinion and apparently you don't. Hmm. No. Which is fine. I did see um, it's funny. I actually own. I was checking my Kindle here to see yeah. what I needed to buy, thanks to your conversation. <laughs> and as it turns out, I actually own Cryptonomicon, even though I've never read it. So I apparently pushed buy now somewhere. Well, the the, um, the thing about Cryptonomicon is that uh, you know, as everybody knows, is it's the book where he predicts the existence of Bitcoin um, before. I mean. You know, which is, and then Snow Crash, of course, is the book where he basically predicts the the existence of the internet. Right. You know, right. I've got. I read Snow Crash some time ago. Yeah. So you know, he's got this. Um, uh, you know, uh, he's known as maybe predicting some things, which it makes the books even geekier because people read them trying to see. Okay, so what is he saying in this book that may come about? And right. it's not germane to the main plot, but he. You know, because he he has he throws in technology and little bits of things that you know the plot doesn't rely on them, but he wants to tell you about this world, and he has some pretty interesting things to say about social media in this book. Cool. Um, and cool. so reading it for that uh, could be something. all right. All right, I, I, I'm convinced it's on my reading. List. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I was going to say uh, I did actually. It's a kind of a geeky thing too. Is I saw a movie called. Uh, uh, the Man Who Killed Don Quixote, um, which is a Terry Gilliam movie. The Terry Gilliam's pretty much been trying to make his whole career and finally made it a couple of years ago. Um, but it, in the United States anyway, even though it did well overseas, it went direct to rental. Um, so watch that the other night. And that was kind of interesting. And you know, Terry Gilliam's has definitely a geeky fan base, I think. Um, so anyway, an, another recommendation there. Kevin. How are you, Kevin? Wow. Um, Wake up. I'm here. No, I'm just <laughs> ma making lists of things to look into and think about. Uh, I, con continuing the, the book club, I'm reading a book that I would not recommend to any of you because you're <laughs> different kinds of geeks than I am, but I am reading the 6502, 65CO2, 65816 handbook by Stephen P. Hendricks, published in 1986. Already read it. No. <laughs> I may, I may actually I may have. have. Yeah, <laughs> I may have read that back in 1986, though. Actually. I think I told you guys before. My first, the first computer I owned was an Apple II, which was a 6502 machine. So, mm -hmm. um, 
So I, I'm actually learning, I've learned quite a bit from it. A lot, some of it's review or stuff that I haven't thought about for a while. And some of it uh, is uh, super, I, it's been super interesting. I've learned a lot. For instance, I mean, here's, here's a, a geeky thing that, that I, I learned. Um, is for, you know, if, you, if, if you have ever dealt with the, the ASCII table, hmm. um, you might know, you know, the capital letter A is 65. And lowercase a is it's 41 in hex come on do it right right okay right (laughs) so it's 41 in hex but it's 61 is the lowercase a in hex and so i don't know i've always thought of them in in uh in decimal not in hex and Mm -hmm. so then it just becomes completely obvious once you start thinking of hex that if you want to make an entire you know make make text lowercase all you need to do is change one byte of the hex you know you add hex mm-hmm. 20 to it and you've made it you made it lowercase um and and that was really cool and there's another place that that works too that i can't think of now where just you can change the the high bit of uh you can uh, uh let's see you can or something with 20 to make it a lowercase you can mm-hmm. and it with not 20 and make it um uh, uh, uppercase right or the one that I like is you can XOR it with 20 and that changes the case. Oh, see, see now this is a, I saw, or I got a piece of spam saying conference coming to Denver, the ASCII conference. <laughs> and I, for a second, I don't know why my brain went there, but for a second, I thought it had to do with this stuff. <laughs> and I got excited. Like I immediately started to think there'd be sessions just like what you guys are talking about. <laughs> You know, XORing, XORing ASCII codes to change the case. You know, seven o'clock to eight o'clock. You know, whatever it was. And, oh, I want to go to that one. <laughs> but of course, it's some. It stands for something. Some sort of marketing or business kind of thing. It was like, well, of course. Why would there be a conference at the convention center on ASCII codes? Oh well, there should be. I would have gone to it though. Yeah, I, I, I would have gone. That. I'll fly out for that. <laughs> so, I'm sure, there's a Unicode conference, but you know. Yeah. Um. I wonder if there was any ever any EBCDIC conferences. <laughs> <laughs> EmojiCon 2019. <laughs> Let's go. Um, so one of the things I did this week was uh, I, I was doing website stuff and I went to some website and was like, wow, this website is old and it's funky and it hasn't been updated for at least five years and I would be sad if it went away. So, um, I learned how to use wget to download the entire friggin' site. And uh, so now I, I have a copy of it. And it's not that hard. It just, I had to install uh, wget on my Mac because it didn't, it doesn't have it by default. And I had to install homebrew cause I'd never did that on, on this Mac. But basically I have this, this little piece of code now that I can point it to a URL and it downloads the website to my computer. And I put it on an external hard drive and then, I have a copy forever, and uh, if it never disappears, then I can put it back. Um, so I had fun this weekend kind of downloading some of the the jankiest, uh, going to fall down any minute websites that, that I could find. So, so Kevin, isn't, isn't this what archive.org does? It is. It is what archive.org does. I mean, it but, sounds like how archive.org started, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I want to so. save that website. Yeah. Um, in practice, when I have gone to archive.org, and I love archive.org. I give them money every month. I love the Wayback Machine. Mm-hmm. I'm not complaining about them in any way. But they're trying to rescue, download everything, and you can't. Um, sometimes I will find that you know the, the, the homepage will be there and to some of the first level pages, but deep internal pages aren't saved. Or there's if it's a site that offers downloads the 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 zip files aren't there or even if it's you know pdfs or something some weird more obscure compression format there's files in a you know dot 7z or something like that um sometimes it doesn't have that um so i wanted to know that there was a complete backup of every file done today and i wanted to have it myself now and after i have it myself i can do things with it that you absolutely can't do with the Internet Archive version, which, you know, the Wayback Machine, you can look at the information online. 
um, and maybe download the files if they've archived those. But when I have every file from it on my computer, then I have every PDF, every JPEG. Uh, I can manipulate them, you know, use them as a screensaver, perform OCR, uh, you know, print them out, whatever, you know, I, I have the information locally. And so you can kind of manipulate it differently if you want to. Cool. So, I was browsing through the, uh, the tweet thread <clears throat> that you're going, that will be linked to in the show notes where Kevin talks about this, but um, you mentioned using wget, mm-hmm. which Linux users already have and Mac users have a standard way to get. Yeah. Um, the, it's funny. The, the, the approach that I prefer for windows to get wget mm-hmm. is to first install a Linux subsystem. Hmm. So I've actually got um, Linux. I'm trying to remember. It's one of the – I installed the Debian um, distro. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a Linux user's answer to everything. Well, <laughs> First install it, Linux. It is and it isn't. But when, you, I mean, when you're starting by saying, hey, I want this Linux tool, yeah. well, why not solve the problem, right? Sure. Um, and Microsoft is apparently starting to look at that too because there's now, now some kind of, of – um, rumor that they're like splitting windows and they're going to be integrating the windows or the Linux kernel more tightly, et cetera, et cetera. Don't have to wait for that. In Windows 10, just install something like the Debian Linux um, subsystem. You can open up a, uh, a bash shell. And if you don't have um, wget, you can use apt-get to get it. And it's just, you know, it just, it's just there, um, which is the right, in many ways, the right solution. I have struggled over the years with getting Linux version, I'm sorry, Windows versions of Linux tools because they're, you know, they're good tools. They solve problems in, in geeky ways and that are, that are really useful. And unfortunately there's no really consistent single source to get you those same tools in a usable format under Windows. So I just wanted to throw that out for anybody running Windows 10 to use that as the approach. Didn't mean to hijack you there. No, no. Uh, I, I really didn't yeah, know how Windows people did it. I kind of tried to research it and put it in the Twitter thread, but yep. I wasn't sure if that was really the right answer. Um, so I, I downloaded a few of the jankier websites that I knew about, and then I started to um, uh, get cocky, and I downloaded three of the – I tried to download three of the, the bigger websites that I don't think are going to go away, but just why not? You know, just just – just to be safe, just to see what would happen. It was more of an experiment. Um, one of them, it worked for about 24 hours and, and downloaded it. The other one, oddly, uh, number two, they started doing an upgrade of the site, like changing the forum software at the same <laughs> time. So, man, if I had this week, this idea a weekend before, it would have been great because <laughs> I would have had a backup, you know, before they potentially screwed things up. So I'm downloading stuff as they're changing things. So I got a partial backup and then things started getting really weird and 404s and stuff. Um, and the other one, it's still downloading. It's been four days and it's still... <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea if it's 90% done or 2% done, but it's just working like crazy downloading things over my my uh, gigabit connection. So I'm kind of surprised you haven't run into situations where it just didn't work because I know that um, one of the security tools, whatever uh, takes a look at the, uh, the, the browser definition string that comes with every request. Mm-hmm. And if it's wget, it just disallows it. Hmm. So, yeah. Oh, another one is if it notices too much, you know, too many yeah. requests coming, from right. a certain source, I'm pretty sure I have that one turned on, not to stop that this sort of activity. Well, I guess kind of too. I mean, mostly for uh, spiders that get out of control. Right. Um, good spiders. It's hard. It's amazing, but the good spiders, like the actual search engines, uh, know to only download little bits at a time, a little today, a little tomorrow. But then bad ones, which are usually like university research projects, um, they'll just say, "Oh, hell with it." I'll just, uh, there's 10,000 pages at macmost.com. Give me them all one second after each other, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it looks like a denial of service attack is basically what it looks like. And, um, my server will block it, uh, as excess resource usage on, from this IP address. Hmm. So, 
Well, apparently that's not built into the default and the websites that, that I'm yeah, uh, not, yeah, copying aren't, the, the web hosts, webmasters rather, aren't uh, yeah. as savvy as that. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, news, if the site I, hasn't been o- uh, updated in so many years, then... Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that WGET will let you uh, spoof the browser identification string to get around that problem, and I'm pretty sure it'll let you throw in a delay too, so... Yeah, the delay is key, but then, you know, the IP address is uh, usually the main thing that's looked at. Right. Um, so that was that. And my other thing I just wanted to mention is a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned uh, creating uh, vintage uh, tech stickers. And mm-hmm. uh, that's been uh, pretty successful. Um, I'm selling two different stickers. Um, and, uh, people, the, the nerds that I know are been pretty into it and downloading them, not downloading them, buying them like crazy. So, uh, I now have an elephant memory system sticker on my laptop. It's awesome. Mm. looks great. Excellent. Glad you're happy with it. So we have elephant and then, uh, Beagle brothers, um, uh, which was a, they made floppy disks. And uh, I just, uh, I'm working out a, a deal with uh, another company that still sort of exists. So they're letting me use their old logo. So cool. Doing later cool. There. Look yeah. forward to that. Cool. Well, yeah, I have to, I have to get an order in. I definitely want to Beagle Brothers. Used to, they used to produce for the uh, Apple II, at least. And I think they did it for other systems too, probably the Atari, these one single sheets that just had their logo at the top. And then it was packed filled with information, like little codes that you could enter into an Apple II to do different things in memory addresses for different little settings. And Right, they had these, these posters. It'd be like, here, yeah. oh, here, are this, here are the 16 colors and here are the numbers and, yeah. you know, to access those colors. Here's the peaks and pokes and here's the DOS commands. And, right. and they were just packed. I mean, like it was fascinating to look at because it was tons of information on a sheet. And then we would, of course, uh, copy them in high school you know, and all the geeks had a copy, the Beagle Brothers, you know, the, oh, there's a new one. Did you see they came out with a new one? They updated some of the <laughs> nerds <laughs> for the Apple DOS OS version, whatever that just came out. Um, so, yeah, so Beagle Brothers is definitely something that uh, I remember. And that logo was nostalgic for me. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that is all my news. Well, this week is last week. I... Um took my cousin and her husband back to the airport. They were visiting from the Netherlands. They had just wrapped up three weeks of RVing around uh, British Columbia, up into the Yukon, and over to Alaska. They had a great time. Then at the end of their trip, they decided to come down and spend a few days with us. Sent them off to the airport. Um, did more border crossings in one week than, than I've done all year, I think. But <clears throat> one of the things that that... Um, made me think about before she came she asked me about okay what how do how do i get connectivity while i'm poking around out there the previous time she came a year and a half or two years ago um, i let her borrow my jetpack um, and just ran her off my data plan and when they needed connectivity and there wasn't something like free wi-fi somewhere um, she would just connect using that, and it worked. But this time, she didn't come here first. She came here last, so, of course, I couldn't get it to her uh, in time for her trip. They ended up uh, purchasing, in the Netherlands, a um, a SIM card that she put into, I think, actually her tablet, of all things. Uh, there was at least one phone call where apparently she's holding the tablet up to her head as if it's a, a really oversized phone. But apparently that worked really well. And what I realized in thinking about it is that, uh, especially in Europe or especially for folks that are traveling a lot more, um, this kind of approach is real common. It's real easy to get yourself a SIM, uh, install it into a device you have, and then just be good to go. Uh, The day she arrived in Canada, she connected and texted me the new phone number she would have in case we needed to talk. Anyway, all that led me to think you guys are are significantly more world, you know, world-versed travelers than I am. I mean, I've gone to Holland twice in the past couple of years. Um, what what are you guys doing for connectivity uh, when you when you travel? Do you have tips or tricks or anything like that? Well, I've been using mostly the, you know whatever Wi-Fi I can find, uh, usually at the places I'm staying. Um, I, I pay AT&T the extra $10 a day 
to be able to use my phone and my regular bandwidth plan, which uh, usually works pretty well. Um, but that's that's pretty much it. I've never done any of the tricks with like getting a SIM card or you know some sort of MiFi little device, you know, uh, while overseas. I have heard recently about this one called Skyroam. Have you guys heard about that? No. It's like a MiFi little device you get or you can rent or you can buy it. And then it's supposed to get you 4G LTE, uh, you know. Right. Uh, and f- it's funny because my, my cousin actually pointed me at that before she came over. I think it was this one. Yeah. And um, I am not sure what convinced her to go the other way. Um, to go with the traditional SIM. Uh, I think it was more that this was a, oh, unlimited Wi-Fi for just $9 a day, which wasn't really that that much of a saving. Um, It's great if you are a constant traveler and you've always got it, um, Mm. but uh, it it doesn't compare to just getting a a cheap SIM card. Yeah, I mean, I found that the problem kind of keeps taking care of itself the further in time we go. Like, it's becoming more and more common to get Wi-Fi everywhere. So it's becoming more of a non-issue. I mean, even like last summer traveling around Europe on train, you know, by train, mm-hmm. the trains always had Wi-Fi. Um, and that, that was easy. Places I would go, restaurants would advertise that they had Wi-Fi. Uh, places that, uh, you know, even tourist locations would advertise their Wi-Fi availability, you know, and give you a password or whatever. Um, you know, it seems like restaurants, two years ago when I was in New Zealand, restaurants made it a big deal, uh, you know, and they're advertising that they had Wi-Fi for you if you ate there. Um, so, you know, compared to like 10 years ago, where it was a lot right. tougher, uh, you know, it's just, it's the kind of thing, well, just, just wait long enough and Wi-Fi is just available in more and more places. And then hopefully, of course, in a few years, we've got the competing, uh, you know, uh, systems from SpaceX and Jeff Bezos and all that, you know, with their uh, global Wi-Fi systems. The last time I was in, actually both last times I was in the Netherlands, I did what you did, basically the equivalent with Verizon. It's $5 or $10 a day. And it's a little pricey uh, if you're there for any length of time. We were were there for short trips. These were like, Mm -hmm. you know, under a week. So it was like 50 or 60 bucks. And it was one of those things that fine, just make it work. And I don't have to think about it. But what was really nice about it is that I had connectivity while I was like on the road. And Google Maps, for example, to get me from point A to point B became a really, really useful tool. And that seems like that wouldn't be available if you're just hopping from Wi-Fi hotspot to Wi-Fi hotspot. No. Um, are you, do you use a VPN? Yes. Um, right now I'm using uh, Nord, Nord okay. VPN. Uh, I find, I, I, I get asked this question all the time. I don't find too much difference between VPNs. I've used a bunch of them in the last five, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. And the main, they all work great when you have strong Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And then when you don't have strong Wi-Fi, they all suck. Because basically what happens is, you end up with Wi-Fi that you drop all the time. And if you're not using a VPN, you basically drop for a few seconds, you're back on, maybe you don't even notice because you weren't actually doing anything at that moment. But when you do have VPN, it's got to reconnect now, the VPN. So a momentary drop-off becomes a minute delay um, while the VPN adjusts and it becomes a pain in the neck. So what, you know, I from... From everything I could figure out from my security know-how, the main problem with not using VPN today, if you only ever go to SSL websites and services, um, you know, so everything's HTTPS or anything you're using like your mail servers, SSL, the main problem is without a VPN, somebody could see what site you're going to. So they could see you're at Google's mail site. They don't know what you're doing there, but you're definitely, you've definitely looked up the IP address, you know, in DNS for Gmail or for, you know, Amazon, whatever it is. That's all public because of the open DNS, but they can't see what you're doing. So it's not a good solution for everyday use to not use VPN. But if all I need to do really is check my email and check my website, which is SSL, and nothing else, 
then it's like, okay, have a field day with the fact that I checked my email and my website. Like you don't need to, you don't need to, uh, to hijack the router for that. <laughs> you could guess that that's what I was doing, or I could have just told you if you asked me. Um, <laughs> so, well, so a lot of times I do give up. I mean, especially if you're on vacation, right? And you've got all of, you know, Budapest in front of you. As soon as you just check your email, you can get going. You know, if it's going to be five minutes to check my email and confirm that my site is still up and answer a comment or two, and I can go and experience this, or is it going to be 20 minutes because I'm struggling with the weak Wi-Fi and the VPN to make sure that I'm all secure? So, there's been way. yeah. When I'm traveling, generally I will use my VPN, which I think it's called Private Internet Access. Um, I will use it when. If, if I, whatever, I'm in a foreign country or even a different city and I need over hotel Wi-Fi or something, I need to log into my bank to move money around or mm. something like that. If, if it's something like, I'll, I'll take that extra layer of security um, just in case. But if I'm just, I don't know, just looking around at Google Maps or trying to look at a museum website or something, there is no point in that at all. Yeah, you're on SSL already and nobody right. can really get anything on you just by doing that yeah if i have to if i am like oh i need to check my bank account or or i do remember like one time i was in when i was in prague last year i needed to transfer money between one bank and another bank oh i made sure vpn was on for that sure sure <laughs> yeah right. but um even though i'm not quite sure that it made that big of a difference because both connections were secure for ssl um but yeah i i i wish it worked better uh, but I know that it's not really the VPN's fault. It's it's the Wi-Fi. It's just sometimes the Wi-Fi is really bad um, where you're at. And a bad Wi-Fi connection with VPN is going to be worse. Right, right. So, Going back to Leo's original question, um, I also have not fussed with SIM cards or anything. Okay. Um, I used to have AT&T Mobile, and I did the $10 a day thing, and that was fine. It did the job. It was $10 a day. Sure. And I was talking to someone who does a lot of international travel for, uh, for music gigs that he plays. And he had, he suggested to me, uh, T-Mobile, which has a international plan. It just kind of built in where you can just use it anywhere. And as part of part of the cost, um, so there's kind of two levels of that. And the level I'm on now, but I'm probably about to change before I do summer travel, is uh, level I'm on now is basically 128K is your bandwidth. It kind of throttles you. So you want to look at Twitter. It absolutely works. If you want to look up a museum website you know, on your phone, you can do it. It's slow. You know, it's It's not the speeds that we're used to. Um, and for, if you pay a little more, which I'm going to do, then it adds, it doubles the speed to 256, which I think will be more tolerable. Um, and you get some other, some other features that I can't remember. That's still pretty slow. That's like old, old DSL speeds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, but, you know, your Google maps will work anywhere and you can access, you know, at least some internet when you're driving down the road. Right. Right. So, so, um, and it's it's cheaper and and that's fine. If I really needed a super get work done or something, but like Gary said, I just I usually just find Wi Fi for the for the serious stuff. Right. Yeah. I uh, w- one thing about those ten dollar a day um, deals that you know AT and T and Verizon and everything offer is they're great when you're thinking of an individual person. As soon as you have a family, <laughs> um, you know, so eighteen days overseas, okay, eight hundred eighty dollars. And it's just done, right? 180 bucks, and I, I don't have to even think about internet. But then multiply that by three because you have three people, um, and now suddenly it's like, oh, wait a minute. And the same thing, even with that, like that Skyroam thing, you know, nine dollars a day for you know while you're traveling is great. Except there's only one of those devices, and so as long as your family is going to be together at all times, then that's fine because you can all connect to it. But as soon as one of you wants to go to a museum while the other goes to the market. And it's like, okay, who gets to take the internet with them? Because <laughs> the other person's not going to have it, or they're going to end up paying $10 for the AT&T thing, in which case, you know, uh, what was the whole point? Right. So it's frustrating. There's these little frustrating things. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I will say that it was very, very nice to, um, at least on my plan, Canada is part of the United States. Oh, and, uh, that's really nice. What is that for on Verizon? Verizon, yeah. I would, I would prefer it, all things being equal, that the United States were part of Canada, please. Well, that's, yes. That's a different discussion entirely, <laughs> my friend. Um, but it was just really nice to say, uh, you know, when you cross the border, I still got the text message that says, hey, welcome to Canada. By the way, this is already included in your coverage, so carry on. You know, so it's just, again, it's, it's like that $10 a day thing without the $10 a day that, you're going against your usual limits. That's actually been uh, the only horror story I ever have with international, you know, data has been simply just uh, the wife going on a trip to Seattle, okay? So in your neck of the woods, this is right. years ago, but I don't think anything's changed with our plan. And simply wanting to take the day to drive into Vancouver to visit somebody. Sure. And basically I said, well, that's, you know, anything you use on your phone is going to cost a bunch. And so don't, you know, watch any videos, don't, you know, bare minimum. And what she did and that without realizing that was going to take bandwidth was have Google maps route her to, <laughs> to find it, which of course updated the view of Google maps constantly. And it downloaded what normally would be on your computer, uh, you know, not that much data, but it added up to $300 of roaming data. Wow. Just having the phone sitting there and she wasn't even looking at it, just listening to it say, turn left at the next intersection. Um, yeah. So that was a surprise. It's like, oh, you're just crossing from Seattle to Vancouver just to, you know, for an afternoon to have lunch with somebody and you end up doing $300 in data because of the Canada, you know, Canada being international and I don't know. I do remember years yeah. ago when um, we would visit my mother-in-law who lived about like a mile from the Canadian border, probably less. And uh, yes, every once in a while the phone would trip into roaming because the signal from the other side of the border was stronger. Hmm. Um, and at that time, the thing to do was to, uh, I think we actually had to call the phone company and say, Hey, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't me. Don't, don't charge me. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely have to turn off roaming if you're yep. getting that close to the border, but it shouldn't be that way. It really, I don't know. And, and the funny thing is I think I haven't looked recently, but I think AT&T now um, you said it includes uh, Canada. I think ours includes Mexico. Like oh, you, you could just, I mean, it says it's not U S but if you look closely, it says U S and Mexico. Right. So you can actually go down to a resort in Mexico and you don't have to even think about it. Right. It's like, but no, if you cross that Canadian border, yeah, you better <laughs> think about it. It's going to cost you a fortune. It's funny because it reminds me actually that one of the things my cousin did mention is that this was one of the very interesting side effects of, of creation of the European Union is that they just got rid of all that. There's no roaming in the EU. Mm. And uh, so it's all one big uh, I mean, one big area. And now with Brexit coming up, they're kind of confused, just wondering just exactly if that's going to affect anything or not. Ireland and Northern Ireland may have the same issue as U.S. and Canada. Yes. You know, you think, oh, I'm just going to go and have lunch with my friend just yep. 10 miles down the road, and suddenly you're paying roaming charges. Yep. yep. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, let's see. Gary. Yeah. Uh, they did something interesting. I don't quite understand it all. Tell us well, more. Well, there's a lot of Apple news, but but so we have to kind of pick and choose what we'll talk about. And with this one little thing Apple announced, you know, when they had their big deal announcements at Worldwide Developers Conference, is basically a button. They announced a button called Sign In with Apple. So the deal is that when you go to different websites on the internet, um, the old-fashioned way of doing it is if you needed an account for any reason at all, which could be as simple as just having a set of preferences or storing some data at the site, you know, you'd have to give your email address, make, a, make up a password, um, and then you have another email address and password to keep track of. The site has email addresses and password to keep track of, and uh, that's how you log on to the site. But years ago... Uh, some clever people decided, well, you can use login systems from other websites. So the two biggest ones are probably Facebook and Google. Twitter's got one too, and there's a whole bunch of others. And you'll see buttons that say sign in with Facebook. So you go to a website, instead of having to create an account, you can say just sign in with Facebook. 
And what happens then is you, it, the site basically opens up a channel to Facebook. Your browser opens up a channel to Facebook. And if you're already logged into Facebook, then you confirm, you know, your browser confirms automatically that, okay, it's you. And the website is able to look through its channel and figure out, okay, you're a unique person. This is your name. I am a unique person. Thank yeah, you. You're a unique person. This is your name. This is your ID. And, um, and you're good to go. You don't have to create a login for that site, which is a good thing in general because you don't, you know, rather just have a few logins and then you go to a site and you use your Facebook login to log into this site. Matter of fact, if you're logged into Facebook already, it's all kind of automatic. You hit a button and you're, you're in. You don't have to enter in your Facebook password or anything. It's an interesting way to do it. And as a website developer, it's really cool because you could use these buttons to um, know that a user is a unique user and store their data with whatever it is they're going to do um, without having to have this information, a password and a, their email address and all that. Problem is, there's a privacy issue, right? Your Facebook account's got all sorts of information about you stored in Facebook. You know, uh, who you're married to, what your likes and dislikes are, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. So when you log into a site with Facebook, the question comes up, well, how much does this site now know about you? And the same thing's true of Google. Google knows tons about you, what you search, you know, maybe stuff you bought, all that. So if you log in with Google, what does the site now know about you because you used your Google account to log in? So Apple, uh, trying to push their, you know, uh, pro privacy thing, uh, basically said, we're going to create one and ours is just going to be as strict on privacy as possible. Um, and it's going to be signed in with Apple and the site's going to get almost nothing like it's if it wants your email address it's going to have to ask for it so in other words you go hit the sign it with apple button and it's going to come up and say hey this site wants your email address are you okay with that and you could say no i don't want it to have my email address um and there's very little information that could actually be revealed it's good because as a website developer you can use sign in with apple like you use sign in with google or sign in with facebook to establish unique users and differentiate between users, you know. So, for instance, if you log on to a site, you could leave a comment and say, my nickname is Gary at the site, okay? And that's all I want the site to know about me. And whenever I leave a comment, it's just going to say, you know, this comment was written by Gary, and that's it. And now I can edit my comments. I can delete my comments. Uh, nobody else can come in and impersonate me. Um, it's my thing. Apple going to do it the strict privacy way, and they – basically said, you know, we're going to do it the privacy way because Google and Facebook are not. Um, and, you know, so kind of like taunting Google and Facebook saying, look, we're, we're going to offer users uh, a, a, a privacy-centric option. Um, so this created a little bit of controversy. Uh, first, uh, I, I think it was Facebook maybe it was Google, they basically said, hey, we don't share any information without permission. We do the same thing. If somebody goes sign in with Facebook and, and they want their email address from you, it says, is it okay if they have their email address from you? So we're just as good at privacy as Apple is. And that's total crap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me explain why. And they're right. I mean, Facebook is right when they say that. You know, if the site wants your email address, going to ask for permission for your email address. It seems like Facebook cares just as much about your privacy as Apple does. But here's why they don't. When you log in using a sign in with Facebook button, you have to sign into Facebook. You either have to already be signed into Facebook or you at that point have to sign into Facebook to authenticate who you are. Same thing with Apple. The difference is that when you're done, so you go to example.com, you hit the sign in with Facebook button, you're signed in. That point, you're still signed into Facebook. So when I'm done there, I go to another site and anything that site's got that tracks me by Facebook, a little Facebook pixel or a like button or anything like that is going to know who I am. Same thing with Google. If I hit sign in with Google, now I'm signed into Google. 
Google's going to track all my search history and do all the stuff that Google does when you're signed into Google. If after I go to example.com, use a sign in with Google button, sign in with Google, now I go to another site, now all the ads at that site that are probably served by Google, all the analytics, they're going to know who I am. The only way to stop that is to sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook and then immediately sign out, which you can't really do because probably then the example.com site is not going to know who you are anymore. So you would have to go to this site, you sign in with Facebook or sign in with Google, only stay at that site, and when you're done with that site, sign out of Facebook and Google to then continue being private on the internet. Apple doesn't have that problem because Apple doesn't track it. You know, we're all website owners. There are no Apple tracking pixels. There are no Apple ads we could put on our site. There's no Apple analytics. There's none of that. There's nothing at a regular website that tracks who you are if you're signed in to your Apple ID. But with Facebook and Google, there definitely is, and it's at most sites. So that's, that's the difference, and that's why the sign-in with Apple thing is really big. So I'm of a mixed mind about this. Okay. I, to- I totally get the convenience. And to be, to, to be, to be clear, I'm not... Um, my mixed mind isn't about is Apple or Google better or is Apple or Facebook better. I have a fundamental problem with the technique, the, the single sign-in technique. And that has more to do with the fact that you're effectively putting all of your security into a single basket. If your Apple ID gets compromised, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, uh, the attacker has access to all of the different sites on which you happen to use the sign-in with Apple option. Isn't that the same situation if someone gets access to your last pass password? True. Um, if they get, they have to get both my password and my database. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that much is true. It seems, so my, my LastPass password isn't something that you're going to hack remotely. It's not something you're going to find in a database, actually a database anywhere. Uh, unlike uh, things like, uh, say, Google or Facebook, I can't speak well enough to, to how easy it is to hack an Apple account, but I know that with Google and with, with Facebook and with Microsoft too, Microsoft has this option as well. You can log in with Microsoft in a lot of places. Um, there are so many different phishing attacks and other kinds of compromises that lead to ultimately uh, these accounts being compromised. I just don't think I don't think apply in the same way, or they're at least not the same attack surface as they would be to any any of the password vaults. Um, it just I've resisted actually using sign in with anything. Um, I much prefer to have a unique login for each and every site so that if anything happens to that site, my exposure is limited to only that site. And yes, I happen to save it all in a LastPass database. But Well, so, so I agree with you. And I think, I think the difference is, I, I think there are levels of importance of sites. And the most important sites will not use this. So like a bank, for instance, is going to have you have an account with them with an ID and password and hopefully two-factor um, and not going to use sign-in with Facebook or sign-in with Apple. So like the top stuff, not going to allow you to do it. Shopping sites, like I don't think Amazon, you could set up an Amazon account this way, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, so the top level stuff, you can't even do it with. Then there's probably level stuff that if it's important to you, then maybe never choose that option. And then you get down to a level where, well, if it's not that important, I'd rather, instead of throwing my email address and another password at a site, use one of these things. And all three that I've mentioned, Google, uh, Facebook, and Apple, all have two-factor authentication. And Apple is really pushing everybody. Uh, almost everybody's going to be on two-factor in the Apple ecosystem pretty soon. There are already some pretty major features you can't even use unless you're two-factor enabled. Um, right now with Apple. So, so then you're, you know, you've got the two-factor thing going. And if it's just not that important of a site, like if it's your Reddit account, for instance, you know, or some site like that where you're just making comments, 
it's like, okay, so somebody steals your Facebook or Apple ID and, oh, now they can get in and leave a comment at this site where you troll or something. You know, it's not, it's not like the same as, you know, getting what they really want, which is like social media stuff or, um, you know, bank information or whatever. So I think there's levels and I think it's, I think using a sign in button on a site that just does, is not that critical to you or your identity is preferable to having another account and a password and all that stuff that may or may not even be very secure. Either the site itself doesn't set it up very securely or you don't bother to use a strong password. Um, so anyway, that's the way I do it. I mean, it's certainly anything I deem as being important. Um, I don't, I wouldn't use a sign in button and I, I don't think I've ever come in conflict. I don't think I've ever seen a site that I consider to be important and they've offered this. It's always been sites where it's like, Oh, a gaming site or a site where you just ask questions or something like that, you know, where it's like not that important. Oh good. I don't want to have to set up a whole account here. I'll just use right. my sign in. Like I use it for, button. for Goodreads, you know, it's just like, a, yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's, I use that I for, just, I use that with Facebook actually. And which are one of the few, logins with Facebook I do anymore. It's funny because Goodreads being an Amazon property has started um, allowing you to log in with Amazon. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. That's, I mean, you know, if it's, if it's an Amazon property, sure, I'm going to log in with my Amazon account Why I set up another one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what all this reminded me of, and the reason that I jumped on this a little bit, is that um, just this morning, there was an article on ZDNet that came across my, uh, my feed Sim swap horror story. I've lost decades of data and Google won't lift a finger is the title of the article. Um, basically this guy um, sounded like he pretty much did everything right. Uh, he did have two factor authentication set up for um, his Google account and uh, somebody T-Mobile, as it turns out, somebody did a SIM swap on him. So all of a sudden he lost access to his second factor and long story short, uh, his Google account got compromised even though it had two factor. And um, that's the scenario that kind of worries me, right? Is if for, for the accounts that, and I agree that, that anything important, a shouldn't be offering this in the first place. And yet we all know that a lot of these services have to walk this really, really fine line between being as secure as they possibly can be and not pissing off their customers. Because let's face it, security done right is an inconvenience. And a lot of people uh, rail against some of the security measures that are uh, very legitimate and very real and very important. So from the customer service side of, of things, I, can, I could see some, hopefully no, no banks or, or you know, stock brokerages, but I could certainly see some marginally important sites offering this and having it be an issue if somebody gets a major account like their Google account hacked. Yeah, another uh, co- controversial thing is Apple is insisting that um, they, you know, if you're going to ha- use a sign-in button system in an app in the App Store, that you have to include Apple's new one, you know, after a certain date or whatever. Um, so you can't, you won't be able to have an app that has signed in with Facebook and signed in with Google and not have sign in with Apple. Now, some people have also noted that their guidelines say sign in with Apple needs to be first. Um, so, you know, but there's the problem with Apple's guidelines is some of them are strictly enforced and some of them are not. <laughs> and right. since this doesn't exist yet, uh, nobody knows if this is one of the ones where, you know, if it isn't first, you're going to get, a re, you know, uh, your app not approved, or it doesn't really matter. It's just like, that's where they prefer it to be. Um, people have been complaining, developers have been complaining about that. Of course, there's nothing wrong with developing your app in such a way so that, you know, the Android version doesn't have sign in with Apple or right. puts it last. I mean, they're just saying one in the, in the app store has to use that. Um, and it's a privacy thing. It's, it's saying, Hey, if you're, if you're going to force people to sign in with Facebook or Google, um, at least give them this op- this option that we're offering, and they're not charging for it. It's free. It's supposed to be pretty easy API. I mean, these are I've done these before. They're not that hard to do, so you can't really make a complaint that's a burden if you're already implementing sign in with Facebook to also implement sign in with Apple. Um, so yeah, I could see people you know, complaining. Oh wait, Apple is forcing us to do this, but I think they've got good reason, and especially now because a related story to this 
is the fact that, you know, a few weeks ago there was a, was it in the Wall Street Journal, I think, or maybe the Washington Post, you know, reported on Apple's privacy is so private. Um, and the story basically was about third-party apps in the yeah. iOS store, um, you know, uh, have, you know, allowing data to pass, right? So Apple's saying, oh, you're always very private on your iPhone, but the truth is if you're using third-party apps and you've given those third-party apps permission to track you, yeah. uh, they're going to do it. And Apple hasn't, you know, is going to stop them. Um, of course, uh, a lot of the information in that article was really horrible, especially one of the main points they made was that all these different apps, was they were sending your IP address back to their server. So in other words, you use their app, and then they got your IP address. And the article didn't mention that any web page you've ever visited since say, the beginning of the internet sends your IP address back in that's standard. That's how the internet it's, works. It is. So to actually claim that the apps, which are using you know, HTTP to communicate back just like a web page is, of course it's sending your, your IP address back there. Agreed, agreed, agreed. But, yeah. but if, if you are asleep and your phone is on your bedside table, yeah. it, it, I find it disturbing that 20 apps are checking in every five minutes and reporting your IP address all night long so these companies can figure out literally where you are all the time based on yeah. your IP address. There's a, there's a difference between going to yahoo.com and then figuring out, oh, you're in Portland or whatever that the day you visit. But they're not systematically tracking you from the device you have at we, with you at all times, all the time. And that's what these companies do do. Well, that's that agreed, and I, I think they've got to be better at it. I also suspect that a lot of them aren't really tracking you. Like, that's just the library they use to, to implement that part is sending it back. People who make the library are the ones who are tracking you. Well, they're just they're just throwing away the data. I mean, the you know, it's like, I mean, if I were to go and uh, use something for one of my games and say, oh, I don't want to, you know, I can't write this low level code. I here's a library that will that will allow me, you know, a player one player to fight another player in an online game or something, and the library is going to send all sorts of data across, including things I don't care about, um, and. It's, you know, unless I go and write my own library, I'm, that data is going to be there. And I just don't do anything with it. I just throw it away. All I want to know is, oh, it's player A makes this move in the chess game and player B makes this move. And that's all I care about. But yeah, there's data about IP addresses and locations and stuff. And it's like, it's not even recorded. And I think for some of it, maybe most of it, that's what's happening. That's sure the data, you can track the data coming off your phone, going to them. But they don't really care and they're not recording it. Some of them probably are, but I think a lot of them, maybe majority are not, but you know, hopefully it gets better. I, I tend to, I tend to agree with you, Gary. So I wanted to circle before we wrap up, I wanted to circle back to one thing you said that Apple is moving towards requiring two factor. Yes. Yeah. So like if you want to use some of the new features uh, in, in, you know, Mac OS Mojave and iOS 12, uh, I think some of the continuity features. I'm trying to remember what some of the other ones are. Um, do they, it, do it, you know? it only works if you have two-factor authentication on your Apple ID. And do you know, I could go look this up, I suppose, but you'll know off the top of your head, do they support things like SMS and the Google Authenticator and that kind of stuff, or is it a unique kind of two-factor just to them? Yeah, so it's, a, it, it's well, they have a unique thing. You can do backups through SMS. So when you go to log on, if it, what it's supposed to do is it sends a, uh, a six-digit code to your other Apple devices. And, you know, and it, it's automatic. So I go and I try to do something on my phone, and, or maybe I try to log into iCloud.com on the web or whatever, and suddenly I'll get a box on my, my MacBook and my desktop right. Mac and right. my iPad all appear at once saying, I know Microsoft does that an too. IPhone, yeah. An yeah. iPhone in Denver, Colorado wants to access this. And it even shows a map and it shows a pin on the map. And I'm like, you know, I go to one of them, I say allow, and then it gives me six digits. I enter the six digits into whatever I'm using and then it's allowed. Now, if for some reason that doesn't work, particularly if you're trying to log into iCloud, you know, the, the main one where you could go make changes, if you try to log in and for some reason it's not working, it'll say other options. And a you can have a backup phone number on there, maybe even more than one, I think. I'm trying to remember if an email address works too. So you have these backups that you set up. Right. So if you are stuck with like, somebody stole my phone, all I've got is my MacBook, 
or I don't have a MacBook. I'm trying to log in. You know, you can do different things. My phone is an Android. Yeah, your phone's an Android device or or whatever, you know, or even, you know, somebody stole your phone, but you could still get access to your text messages through, you know, the uh, carrier's website, all sorts of ways. So they're, they're doing okay. backup situations with that. I'll have, to, I'll have to look into that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they'll be there. Uh, plenty of people I've heard, you know, they see one little feature and they're like, oh, I want to use this. Oh, it wasn't working for me because I had two-factor turned off. So I now I'm using two-factor. It's all it took was this one little feature that was kind of interesting them for right. a second to push, push them over the edge to two-factor. And it's like good for Apple to you know, do that. I, I understand sometimes it's a technical reason. They're saying, hey, if you're, we're going to have your devices talk to each other like instantaneously with this continuity thing, let's make sure things are really secure first before we start doing these things that could have implications if you have a weak password and that's all it's standing between you know, your account and somebody breaking into it. Very cool. Hey, yeah. I think we need to wrap it up here. My yeah. understanding is that one of our attendees has an event this evening, so yes. getting close to our uh, cutoff time. Any well, other last comments? No. No. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh72. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we will hopefully see you here again next week. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.